Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome to the CNBC special, Taking Stock. I'm Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer is off tonight. Stock's jumping today as lawmakers, by all accounts, get closer to an agreement on the debt ceiling. All major averages closing higher on the day, with the Nasdaq leading the way amid a continued rally in AI-related tech names. As investors try to make sense of the moves on Wall Street and in Washington tonight, we'll dig into the week that was and what's ahead for the market coming up. Debt ceiling deadline. The White House and Republican leadership inching closer to a deal to raise the debt ceiling as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announces a new date for a potential default. We'll break down the latest from the Capitol and what it all means for your portfolio. Plus, AI bubble brewing? NVIDIA setting off a massive rally in the tech sector this week after noting significant demand for its chips that enable artificial intelligence applications. But have the stocks come too far too fast? And Retail Roundup will take a look at some of the biggest earnings movers in the space so far and what the outlook for the group is going forward. Take a closer look at where the stock market did end up this week. You see the S&P 500 closing above the 4,200 level uh, for the first time in about nine months, actually just slightly ahead of that February 2nd peak we saw before. We've been in this range for many months. You see it nosed above there. Nine and a half percent price return for the S&P 500 so far this year. It's a pretty good picture, although a lot of people scrutinizing exactly how we got here. Take a look at the split between the Nasdaq 100 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. This is kind of the new economy, uh, large growth stocks versus the older traditional economy. And you see, this is only a a one-month, month-to-date basis, and it's more than a 10 percentage point performance spread. On a year-to-date basis, the Nasdaq 100, driven by those huge tech stocks, up 30 percent now year-to-date. Dow Industrials roughly flat. And it comes as we got some better-than-expected personal spending numbers, better-than-expected economic data in general, but also some hotter inflation uh, data this morning. Take a look at the two-year Treasury yield responding to the warmer-than-expected uh, economic picture here, rebuilding uh, those yields up to 4.57 percent, uh, uh, pretty much at a high since uh, the uh, SVB, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, meltdown, pricing into potential for more Fed rate hikes. So far, broader market is holding in with that, although a lot of uh, the struggling stocks below the surface. Let's dig deeper into the market action with Brian Vendig, MJP Wealth Advisors president, and Warren Pies, 314 Research co-founder and strategist. Uh, thanks to you both for, uh, for wrapping up your weeks uh, with us. And Warren, I uh, just love your thoughts on the, really the only conversation about this market that's been going on in the last month, which is the split between the very, very large growth stocks that have been performing very well. Uh, as, and then uh, you have the rest of the market, which hasn't really kept up. What are the implications of that based on your work? 
Well, uh, divergences all over the place is really what we're seeing. A divergence between the, the future that the bond market is discounting, the stock market is discounting, and divergence between these top 10 largest stocks and the bottom 490. Year to date, our work is shows that the top 10 stocks have returned like 35%. The bottom 490 are basically flat. And so we classify this as a mega cap divergence. Anytime you see the top 10 outperform the bottom 490 more than 10%, over a rolling six month basis, that's a mega cap divergence. And the real message here is that the next step for this market is gonna be determined by the bottom 490, not by those top 10 mega cap tech stocks anymore. So we went back into history, we defined these mega cap divergences, five times the market's higher later, eight times the market is lower later. And the real defining characteristic, you have my chart here, is the breadth of the overall market. We wanna see the breadth of the overall market turn up to above 50% of the stocks above their 200 day moving average. At this at current uh, levels, we're at 37% of the S&P 500 above its 200 day. So we're basically tracking in line with those negative cases at this point in time. To give you a little more historic context, this is the fourth worst divergence we've ever seen. The three that were larger, 2000, 2008, and then 2020 in COVID. Yeah, I suppose uh, you can only stretch it so far. And, and Brian, I, I wonder your perspective about this, uh, somebody who's kind of allocating client money. If you own the index fund, the market cap weighted S&P 500, it's kind of doing its job. Uh, maybe you don't care how it got there. And it seems if the market's being somewhat rational, it's seizing on some of these big picture technology uh, trends, maybe paying too much for them, but definitely uh, being aware of them. And then the rest of the market, maybe pricing it a little more Fed, Rate hikes, maybe the struggling uh, sort of parts of the economy. Uh, what's wrong with that picture and how would you navigate it? Uh, I appreciate it, Mike. I think right now you have to think about where there is some durability in the market moving forward because we're not out of the woods just yet. I mean, we still know that it's a jump ball with rate increases uh, for the next couple of months. We still have to get through the debt ceiling crisis and we are in an earnings recession. So I think right now the market is reacting to the fact that last year valuations came in disproportional to growth stocks versus value stocks. Markets reacting off of that, looking for growth and paying a premium, knowing that the global economy and US economy is slow, showing signs of slowing. And also keep in mind that divergence that Wayne's talking about really goes back to also the beginning of March with the banking or the confidence in crisis, I should say, of our banking sector. So I think right now people are jumping in on this AI frenzy because other research that I've seen is that if artificial intelligence did not become this thematic uh, investment, Mike, as we've seen thus far, the stock market this year actually might be negative. So I think we just have to be realistic about where the fundamentals are going and allocate appropriately, recognizing that the risks are still evidently in front of us. Um, Warren, is it true that we are in an earnings recession? Because it seems like the estimates are now kind of flattening out. Uh, we did have a decline. We have small year-over-year uh, you, you know, declines. Uh, but I just wonder if that part of the bear case is sort of on hold, as was, you know, the recession call has not really come about either. Yeah, I mean, I certainly we're seeing earnings. If you roll forward and you do blended 12-month forward, by virtue of the fact that 2024 earnings estimates are still pretty high, we're seeing a small uptick in earnings. Now, again, the thing about the divergence we were talking about, if you break it down between the top 10 versus bottom 490, the bottom 490 have not seen any improvement in forward earnings outlook. That's all been up in the top 10 largest stocks, which do represent like 32% of the overall S&P 500 market cap. So it's meaningful, but the improvement has been very concentrated. 
in these top 10 stocks. Um, when you step back, still, the overall analyst community is, is baking in double-digit earnings growth between 2023 and 2024. So when you look at just from an analyst earnings estimate perspective, the stock market is not baking in a recession and it doesn't align with the bond market here. So that's really what we're looking at and digging into is the bond market's forecasting a lot of Fed cuts. So basically a recession. Stock market, we see double digit earnings from 2023 to 2024. No signs of a recession. Something has to be wrong between these two markets. Brian, you did mention that you know, we're kind of not through to the other side of a lot of the challenges we knew we were going to be hitting coming into this year, right? The Fed's not done, uh, economic slowing, the rest of the world kind of not necessarily uh, picking up the slack. But um, what do you make of the fact that here we are with the S&P 500 where it is? Is it an opportunity to rotate into bonds? Uh, how would you take advantage of the moment we find ourselves with right here where the, where the stocks have done I would say, better than nearly anybody expected at the index level. Absolutely, Mike. I, I definitely agree that what we've seen this far has exceeded expectation for sure. But I think the point and one of the major macro elements that are driving this is, again, it looks at where the Fed is going to take interest rates moving forward, which does affect valuations, as we all know. And the market, the equity market, is pricing in that we're going to have rate cuts over the second half of the year and we're, I don't think we're seeing that in the bond market right now. So what I, I think could be an opportunity moving forward is that as we think about it, inflation should be coming down. Um, we think demand will continue to slow, but it's taking longer on the consumer side because most consumers haven't been impacted by uh, incre uh, increase in interest rates because mortgages have been uh, locked in a long time ago at, at very competitive rates when, when consumers had those opportunities. So I think what we're looking for opportunity is to say, okay, if inflation is coming down, we think the yield curve over time will flatten. Bonds should have an opportunity to rally at different parts of the curve. But on the equity side, I do agree that if um, the fundamentals hold on those earnings outlooks for uh, next year and beyond, then we probably will see an uptick in those parts of the economy or parts of the market that haven't participated in this rally. And if we are gonna hit a slowdown, and I think we are moving forward, then those parts that are a little bit more recession-proof might have an opportunity uh, moving forward. Uh, Warren, if the 10 giant stocks that have been contributing most of the upside this year, if they just cool off, they pull back as normal, uh, as you would expect if it was a normal uh, pattern here, and let's say the rest of the market doesn't pick up the slack. So we track toward those negative uh, instances that you mentioned. How much downside do you anticipate from here? We're you know, seven, eight months past the October low at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, our base case, as crazy as it sounds sitting here at 4,200, our base case is that we get new lows, which means we break below that 3,600 level before we get new all-time highs, which is 4,800, call it, in the market. That's what we see happening in this cycle and how we see it playing out. Uh, I think in the near term and more intermediate term, you have to think that maybe the market is carving out a little higher range. We had thought 36 to 40, 3,600 to 4,000. Maybe it's more like 3,800 to 4,200. Either way, I don't see, as we've talked about before, Mike, there's, we are not in the neighborhood where you get a traditional equity bottom. Never had stocks bottom when the Fed's still hiking rates. Never had stocks bottom. And then six months later, have the yield curve inverted. And earnings, even though we've had some modest improvement out of the top 10, they, the, the earnings picture has not behaved as you would expect six months post bottom. So when we step back and look at it from 40,000 feet, it doesn't look like this is a real uh, bear market bottom that happened in October. Mm -hmm. So I think range bound, the recession keeps getting pushed out. 
3,800 is probably a good target. We'll see what happens from there. But ultimately, new lows before new highs. Yeah. And uh, here we are exactly halfway between those all-time highs and the uh, October lows, right, that you sketched out there. Guys, thanks very much, uh, Brian and Warren. Appreciate it. Up next, the debt ceiling duel will take you live to D.C. for the latest in those negotiations. We're just getting started on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Tonight, crass ceiling. When can the market move on from D.C.'s debt debate? Plus, artificial exuberance? Why vigilance matters as our romance with A.I. blooms. And gotta get away can the summertime search for sun brighten your portfolio? That and more next. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. We're following the latest developments in the debt ceiling battle. Kayla Tausche, live in D.C. with more. Hello, Kayla. Hello, Mike. No deal is expected today as we near dinner time and negotiators keep working to reach common ground on spending levels and on some of the other add-in policy items they've been discussing for weeks. And a new letter from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen now establishing June 5th as the X date. That gives them a little bit of breathing room, but the letter notes that there is not much room after that. Yellen writing this, we will make more than $130 billion of scheduled payments in the first two days of June, including payments to veterans and Social Security and Medicare recipients. These payments will leave Treasury with an extremely low level of resources, and Yellen noting the Treasury would not be able to make the $92 billion of payments that are due the following week. So time is still of the essence, especially since Republicans are holding fast to their agreement to give members 72 hours to read any deal, which hasn't been reached yet. Patrick McHenry, a GOP negotiator, suggested the ball is now in the White House's court deals within reach. It just has to be agreed to. And we're waiting for the White House to understand the the current set of terms we're dealing with. 
The president is just about to leave on the south lawn of the White House, where he'll be spending at least a day at Camp David. We'll see if he takes any questions from reporters and whether he sizes up where negotiations stand. Mike. And Kayla, what do we know, I guess, at this point on an updated basis about exactly where the battlefront is? What are the terms that are, are being hashed out that uh, seem like they remain the sticking points? Well, pretty much everything remains a live ball, Mike. I mean, I was told by sources earlier today that nothing is agreed to until everything is agreed to. Just one example of that is that permitting reform, which has been part of this negotiation since the beginning for more than a month, that was essentially dead. It was out of the mix for 12 hours overnight at the request of some Republicans. Then it was added back in for both uh, the Republican permitting provisions and the Democratic permitting provisions because they realized that it was a net vote winner as far as the policy goes and both sides needed extra votes. So, you know, these things are in and then they're out and then they're in and then they're out. And that's just one example of one policy. And they're dealing with a checklist of dozens of things. Right. Uh, a dynamic situation. Uh, both sets of negotiators having to answer to uh, to their members. Uh, all right, well, have a good weekend, Kayla. Hope it's not uh, too much of a busy one for you. Uh, the debt ceiling is among the biggest market concerns at the moment. So how can investors capitalize on the action or at least navigate it with so much hanging in the balance? Let's bring in Nick Colas, co-founder of Datatrek Data Research. And Nick, um, obviously we have some precedent here, how previous debt ceiling standoffs have gone, how the market has reacted to them. What do you make of the fact that stocks have been relatively unmoved at this point, at least at the index level, by what's going on in Washington? Do we take heart in that or is it going to take some kind of panic to get movement in D.C.? Yeah, definitely we should take heart from that because the S&P and the index as a whole has held up relatively well in the face of what's this increasing uncertainty. You know, back in 2011, the S&P was off 8% in July of 2011 as we were going through exactly the same kind of exercises now. And so the fact that we're still moving a little bit higher is definitely good news. And in general, what should investors be looking for in terms of this process playing out. So if we get closer to the deadline, uh, if the, the, you know, the bond market starts to really get uh, a little bit of a tantrum going and, and stocks can't keep their cool, um, what would you wait for? Because everyone looks back at that panic in 2011. We got a 17 percent peak to trough drop in a hurry. It doesn't seem in retrospect to have been smart to be one of the ones panicking out because the market did rebound quickly. Yeah, that's right. It is absolutely true. You know, granted, in 2011, we went right into the Greek debt crisis right after the uh, the debt ceiling uh, problems in July. So it's a little bit of a tough comparison in that respect. But if you look at a couple of things, the first thing we look at is the VIX. The VIX is still a very relevant indicator of market fear. And it's been hovering at the highs around 20, but really not wanting to break over 20. That's an important level because 20 is the long-term average of the VIX. So the fact that it got to 20 and pulls back is a significant fact that markets are not yet very concerned. We'd be looking for levels of 24 to 28 before we wanted to get long in any kind of mini crisis related to this issue. That's a half and one standard deviation above the mean. So those are significant levels as well. Past that, we don't really see much happening. And then at that point, if we're in a bit of a swoon, then I think you want to cycle back into the winners that we've had this year, particularly big tech, if they begin to drop in an overall market panic. It's kind of fascinating that we've uh, have this situation going on with the debt ceiling. Everyone assumes we get a deal, and so far the noises have been relatively encouraging. But also, you know, we went through this little mini regional banking crisis uh, just a few months ago, and still with it all, the market is being dragged toward pricing in more Fed rate hikes because the economy and inflation have been kind of sticky in their ways. It's, it seems like a, an odd 
uh, mix right there. It really, really is. It's a, that is the sort of the conundrum the market has right now is we have this one temporary overhang, and then we have a bunch of better issues in terms of the economy. Uh, Atlanta Fed GDP now is looking for 2.9% re- uh, GDP growth in, in Q2, which is fantastic. Initial claims have been trending lower. Next week's jobs report should be pretty good. That's bad in terms of creating rate uncertainty, but it does support earnings. And ultimately, the earnings picture after the Q1 numbers that were pretty good needs to stay strong in Q2 and Q3 just to have a shot at holding 4,000 as we have so far. And just because it's it's really all anybody can fixate on right now, I'd love your take on this top-heavy nature of the rally this year. Really stretched pretty far in terms of the winners versus the majority of stocks. What does that tell you? Yeah, it's impressive. I mean, big tech, those seven names, it's all the S&P gains for the year, and it's far outpacing anything else. So far, it seems to be more of a natural pullback in terms of those stocks and those companies producing better earnings results. That's been a big chunk of what's happened this year. And now the beginning of a little bit of enthusiasm over generative AI, chat GPT, and all those sort of big issues that will probably pay over 10 years, but we're trying to price them in today. Yes, without a doubt. The market... uh is in a hurry uh, to, to do that. Uh, Nick, great to speak to you. Thanks very much. Have a good week. Thank you. All right, coming up, NVIDIA in the green again today, still building on yesterday's 24% gain. Will this week go down as the one when AI became real to the market or when the bubble started brewing? We'll debate that next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. NVIDIA and Marvell pulling the whole semiconductor space higher this week as earnings give way to even more AI buzz. Are the strong results from these companies legitimizing the hype or is it a bubble set to pop? Here to discuss is Will Summerlin, ARK Venture co-lead and AI analyst at ARK Invest. And Will, um, appreciate you coming on today. And, you know, I saw FactSet said that 110 companies in the S&P 500 mentioned AI in their earnings call this quarter. Clearly, there's a tremendous rush to participate to show among companies that they are taking uh, this opportunity seriously and are urgently trying to ramp up. What ultimately is going to determine if that's money well spent and if there's actually an economic payback from it? 
It's a great question. If we step back for a second, uh, everybody saw ChatGPT blow up. I think that was one of the catalysts that got everyone excited about AI. It grew from zero to 100 million users in 60 days. It's the fastest growing software product in history. And we're already seeing users get value out of AI. Uh, we invested in a private company called Replit that uh, helps people write software code with AI. And they're already seeing many software developers where 80% of their new code is now written by AI. So this is not a fad. This is a technology that's creating tremendous value. And I think the question becomes, how can you leverage this tool? How can you leverage this technology to create value for customers? And we've seen a lot of companies building AI that's not particularly useful, that might have a little bit of a, a, a bump in the, in the beginning because people are excited and it finds product market fit around novelty. But what we're really looking for are enduring companies that are creating tremendous value for their customers using AI. From an investor's point of view, it seems like there are clearly only a limited number of large companies with a clear path toward capitalizing on this. I mean, NVIDIA, the most obvious here. Um, and so all the enthusiasm tends to run through a handful of ticker symbols. Uh, and so I wonder if that's creating distortions. What about NVIDIA? I mean, it's a massive you know, revenue guide higher for the current quarter. The market loved it. All of a sudden, it's up 25% and yet not as expensive based on revised earnings. Um, and, and I know that ARC was a, an early believer in NVIDIA, but didn't really see the value at these levels. So where does that place it? Yeah, so we saw NVIDIA as one of the beneficiaries of AI back in 2014. We were buying it when it was a $10 billion company. And at that point, it was very much a contrarian bet. People didn't understand the future for NVIDIA. PC market wasn't doing well. Uh, but it is very clearly one of the key beneficiaries from artificial intelligence. But we feel at this point, it's 25 times sales. A lot of the upside is priced in. And also, if you look at the risks here, uh, you know, it's not a software company. It's not generating software revenue that's recurring and high margin. It's building chips. And that's a cyclical business. And so there's certainly some risk around cyclicality. There's also more competition. We see the hyperscalers like Meta and, and Google starting to build their own chips and vertically integrate. And so that's certainly some competitive pressure and a competitive threat. And when we look at this on a relative basis, you look at a company like Twilio, which we believe will be one of the major beneficiaries of artificial intelligence, it's trading at three times sales. If you look at a company like UiPath, which has tremendous data advantages, distribution advantages, and a founder and CEO who's all in on AI, we think it's going to be one of the major winners from AI. It's trading at six times sales with recurring high margin software revenue. And so we think on a relative basis, NVIDIA does certainly look expensive. It will be a beneficiary. It's an exceptional company led by a great founder and CEO. But we think that's a consensus play at this point. I mean, you're an AI analyst. Therefore, you definitely, I assume, believe there's something very distinctive and qualitatively different about this technology relative to just the general trend of software always getting better, smarter, faster. Uh, what specifically is it, though? Because we can all remember when big data was a buzz phrase and it seemed like it was the thing that was driving a lot of market cap up and down. Um, what's different about AI as it's now being manifest? Yeah, so if we step back for a second and think about the history of artificial intelligence. Uh, this was a concept that was developed at a summer camp in 1956 with a bunch of mathematicians and computer scientists. And they figured they could make a computer as intelligent as a human, thought they would be done by the end of summer. Turns out it took a little bit longer than that. And it's been a history of winters and summers through artificial intelligence as the technologies evolved. And the two key breakthroughs that really got us to where we are today are the development of neural networks and the invention of something called a transformer. And I won't touch on exactly what yeah. that does, not to bore everyone, uh, but basically what it means is computers can now think like humans. 
and they can start to automate more and more knowledge work tasks that traditionally required skilled labor. And if we look at this in the context of software engineering as being one of the early adopters, we're already seeing software engineers get two to five times productivity uplift from an AI coding assistant. And we're rapidly approaching a point where AI is actually better at most tasks than humans. If you look at Tesla's full self-driving software, uh, it's already five times safer than human drivers, and it's improving at an extraordinary rate. And so if you step back for a second and think about the opportunity, human knowledge workers are paid about $32 trillion a year. And we're rapidly approaching a point where AI can automate most knowledge work. And so the opportunity here is really incredible. The internet has created about $10 trillion in value since it was invented. We think uh, AI will certainly create a lot more than that. Wow. Uh, well, certainly uh, kind of huge opportunity and, uh, and maybe some, uh, some, some upsides and downsides there. Well, appreciate the perspective. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right. Our next guest called the bubble in crypto before the FTX collapse. So does she see a bubble brewing in AI? Let's see what the charts are signaling with Jessica Inskip, Director of Education and Products at Options Play. Uh, so, Jessica, what is the market uh, signaling at this point about uh, the size of this opportunity? Look, we're, we're only, what are we, I don't know, seven months into this since ChatGPT really became uh, a big deal. So do bubbles form that quickly in a dangerous way? Oh, they certainly can. And if you think about the dot-com bubble, and that's something that I've, I've just heard this compared to so many times, that was burst because of young VC-backed companies without a path of profitability rather than the, the hype of the promise of new technology. So if you think about younger companies and regardless of the bubble, the internet was a revolution that created jobs and efficiencies, but it was something that was unknown. So I do think it's a different type of market because we have access to technology and it's a mature type of market. So it's absolutely possible for a bubble to form quickly. Look at the bank runs with Silicon Valley Bank. That was quicker due to technology. So I think there's an accelerated pace of adoption that is beneficial on the upside and could also exercise caution on the downside. So it's a great way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly go back to beyond the, uh, the tech bubble in the late 90s and people were identifying the excesses, I would say years before it really culminated. And so I guess a lot of things have to come together where you know the, the money just starts to flow very indiscriminately. People don't care about valuations. They go to unprofitable companies. A tremendous number of new offerings swamp the market in terms of IPOs. And then interest rates probably have to be uh, unfriendly to pop it ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you take a look at the fund, Fed fund rates over time in the early 90s, it led to excessive growth because it was easy access to money without a path to profitability. So there was so many influxes of IPOs, newly listed securities back on the uh, NICE and the NASDAQ. And that, that led it into an acceleration of IPOs. And then if you think about how bubbles form, it's really when there is so much pessimism that outweighs optimism or just a really, in other words, just a, a lot of selling pressure. And then if you layer on a lot of IPOs, so a massive amount mm -hmm. of companies that are VC-backed running through that cash, they have those lockout periods for 180 days, so about six months. So that pessimism, that selling pressure was actually handcuffed. Mm -hmm. And once that lockout period was, was gone, then that caused the bubble to burst. So the difference is, Mike, that there, the the AI 
revolution or, or what we're looking at right now is a handful of securities mm -hmm. that are driving it. It's mature companies that have a path to profitability who have done this before. It's not a ton of companies with new technology that doesn't have quick adoption that are that are hand tied causing a bubble to burst. There is, we saw it with NVIDIA and other companies, there is revenue changes and earnings expansion and good management, which is extremely important in this type of environment. So at this point, it would seem that if anything is going to grow excessive, it's not there yet. And, and so therefore, an investor can can try to own the leaders. I, I think it's possible. So everything is especially on, on days like today where something is has has rallied so very much. Yeah. I wouldn't never be a buyer then, but this is an opportunity for pullbacks. You know, we're talking about a revolution and the change of how AI will transform the world. The, the World Wide Web was something that came with increased productivity. And I think it's very interesting if we look at 25 years worth of productivity. We've actually plateaued now that we've gone into the, even this restrictive Fed environment, which is, of course, a key inflationary concern. So so following that that level of productivity, we are really due for that. And it's going to be accelerated, but it's also a process, meaning that it's an opportunity to understand that this is something new that we have the wiring for. However, with any type of rally or decline, the inverse always happens. So if we are in a, a new rally with the NASDAQ 100 or the broader S&P 500, it's natural to have some declines throughout, which is a great time to dollar cost average in and just add on to your positions. All right, absolutely. Seems like a little bit of a decision point here with the market at the top end of this range. Jessica, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks. All right, and one programming note, make sure to tune in to Jim Cramer's interview with Marvell CEO Matt Murphy on Mad Money next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Coming up, spinning and winning? An industrial spinoff hits the street. Plus, looking for a good deal? The retail trends that could shape summer shopping. And spanning the globe. Can travel stocks give your portfolio that healthy bronze glow? Plenty more when we return. Welcome back. Uh, there has been a quiet pickup in corporate spinoff activity in recent months. This is a, uh, a transaction where a big company divides off a, a piece of itself and, and sells another company to the public. It's often an IPO or just a straight spinoff. And historically, spin, spun off companies perform relatively well. Take a look here. There actually is an ETF for spun off companies called CSD. It's outperformed over the last three years. The IPO ETF, another uh, way of new issues coming to market, had a real boom bust cycle and has really been in the doldrums. So it seems as if big companies looking to get more efficient have found this or rediscovered spinoffs. And we did see another spinoff begin trading just today uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was, uh, there we go, Atmos Filtration Technologies, which is part of Cummins, raised over $275 million in its IPO today. The stock soaring 11% in its first day of trading, continuing the recent stretch of strength among those spinoffs coming to market. Our Seema Modi spoke to the CEO of Atmos earlier today and has more now. Hi, Seema. 
Hey, Mike Cummins is the latest company to join the surge in spinoffs that you were just describing with Atmos Filtration going public at the New York Stock Exchange, bringing the total number of global carve-outs to 74 this year compared to the 78 we saw this time last year, according to S&P Capital IQ. Atmos CEO Steph Disher telling us as an independent company, it can achieve greater growth milestones. We've been working on this for some time. We see this this gives us the opportunity to seek our growth opportunities beyond what we've had with incumbents. Ticker ATMU uh, trading higher by 11% on its first day of trade. Spinoffs, by the way, so far this year have on average outperformed. Take a look at GE Healthcare, which is up uh, double digit percentage points since its, since its inception, outperforming the S&P 500. And then there's Kenview, which went public earlier this month, faring well better than its parent company, J&J and the S&P 500. Morgan Stanley did some analysis and it shows that spinoffs outperform the market on average by 10.2% two years after a listing, while parent companies see their stock prices drop on average by around 8%. We spoke to Goldman Sachs, global head of mergers and acquisitions, David Dubner. He says one of the reasons we're seeing so many spinoffs, Wall Street wants a simpler story. The ability to tailor your equity story and communicate, in many cases, a simplified, uh, pure play uh, equity story, we believe is powerful, that allows investors to um, value a single business. Dumber adding that's the slowdown in the IPO market, of course, also might contributing to this rise in spinoffs. For sure. And I also would expect that, I mean, private equity has a lot of money to put to work, but that market might have slowed down as well as the credit markets have become a little tighter, perhaps. And Seema, uh, in terms of the types of companies that do this, industrials, if you look at that spinoff ETF, industrials are overrepresented. It seems like, I guess, there's more conglomerates in that area. Uh, and it makes more sense as they try to find efficiencies to to maybe just hand off one of their divisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we had that conversation with Goldman, Mike. It's really the industrials and healthcare that are leading this spinoff trend because they're the two sectors where we've seen so much uh, M&A and acquisitions over the past five to seven years. They've really grown their inorganic pipeline. But now they're in a position where perhaps if the IPO market has sort of dried up and private equity hasn't shown as much interest because of tighter lending conditions, that this is another option to sort of simplify their story. And, you know, we also talked to other experts who say that the younger cohort of traders, they also are more tuned to buying and investing in companies that, that have a simplified message. Mike? Yeah. And, uh, and obviously new names uh, and uh, typically tend to be neglected right out of the gate. And that creates opportunities for investors to pick them up uh, at lower valuations. Mm. Seema, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good weekend. Let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. All the major averages ending the day up at least 1% as investors bet on a resolution to the ongoing debt ceiling negotiations. The Dow snapping its five-day losing streak after climbing 329 points in the session, while the S&P and Nasdaq both notched their strongest one-day performances since early May. Take a look at the week-to-date gains from the SMH, that's the VanEck Semiconductor ETF. It finished 11% higher this week, marking its best weekly performance since last November, with its largest holding NVIDIA soaring 25% just this week. Coming up, we may be headed into a holiday weekend, but we've already got our eye on next week. Retail reports from Nordstrom, Macy's, Dollar General, and Lululemon are all expected. We'll break down what to watch.
Welcome back to Taking Stock. Uh, we're taking stock of the retailers as we saw big moves on the back of earnings. Abercrombie & Fitch up 30% this week on hopes its turnaround is working. Gap up 12% just today on a surprise profit. But on the downside, American Eagle and Dollar Tree both down 11% this week after their results. And more retail earnings are coming our way next week. Nordstrom, Macy's, Lululemon and Dollar General will all report. Joining us now to discuss all the results is Melissa Repko, CNBC retail reporter. Melissa, uh, we should mention some of those big moves to the upside in those stocks came from pretty depressed levels. But clearly, there are some signals to be pulled out of what they're saying about the results, uh, the state of the consumer. What themes uh, really strike you out of all these reports? There's really three themes that I've noticed across the board. Sales in general have weakened throughout the quarter. So February to March was really the steepest drop off. And the second thing is that big ticket and discretionary is under pressure. We've heard that pretty much across the board from everyone from Walmart to Costco and beyond. And then the third thing is that there's kind of this, this push-pull dynamic going on where on the one hand, retailers are benefiting from falling costs of things like freight and commodities, on the other hand, they may be adding back more promotions and more markdowns because that consumer is less willing to spend. We did see, you know, Costco get a little bit of an upside reaction to its results. There seems to be a real winners versus losers dynamic in this industry. Always is. But in this time in particular, when maybe uh, the pie isn't growing very fast in terms of consumer spend, what does Costco, if anything, tell us about those themes? So Costco is in a unique position because a lot of its revenue actually comes from membership. Sure. So remember that, that its sales don't matter quite as much because it has that steady stream of income coming in. And I think a lot of investors are looking past some of its softness in the recent quarter and saying, hey, it's a place a lot of people go to stretch their dollar. Also, it's important to remember that Costco has a higher income consumer that's probably more insulated from some of the dynamics that are going on, even inflation. If people are paying higher prices for food, not only are its consumers feeling that a little bit less, but also they're probably going to Costco a little bit more to get those bulk packages. Uh, we see uh, Nordstrom and Macy's next week. So what clues do we have based on how the department stores have done? I mean, Kohl's, I guess we heard from, which is a different category. Yes. The tricky thing about Kohl's is Kohl's is going through a turnaround and it's had a lot of its own struggles. But the common theme with Kohl's and then Macy's and Nordstrom will be how is inventory looking? Because inventory is the one lever that a lot of retailers use to try to keep markdowns low. And Kohl's generally made investors happy. It had made a lot of progress, which put it in a better position. And so it, it was showing that result. But for Macy's and Nordstrom, we'll have to see, did they have the same thing? Are they in a better spot? With Macy's, they entered the quarter in a stronger spot because they were not one of those retailers that had a glut of inventory. Mm -hmm. So in theory, unless something dramatic has happened with them, they will be ahead of the game a little bit when it comes to that. But that being said, they may be adding in more promotions. We heard from Foot Locker, for example, that in the coming year, they really anticipate promotions to be a bigger factor that they need to drive sales of sneakers. And then I guess quickly, Lululemon, I mean, it would seem to be catering to somewhat of a higher end. They have a much kind of more believed longer term growth story as well. The thing is with Lulu, it's a mixed bag because on the one hand, they have very strong pricing power. On the other hand, they were one of those companies hit by a glut of inventory. Mm. So they've had more markdowns than usual. That's something that typically you do not see at Lululemon stores and online. And so if they've been able to clean that up, that'll be something that, that investors are watching. But generally, they're thought to be a company with some pricing power. For sure. Uh, Melissa, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll watch those numbers next week. Coming up, nearly 3 million people are expected to fly in the U.S. this holiday weekend, the most passengers since before the pandemic. 
As more plan to take off, will stocks in the space follow suit? We're talking travel trends next. Welcome back to Taking Stock. Memorial Day weekend is here, and so is vacation inflation. Triple uh, A says more than 42 million Americans will travel 50 miles or more this weekend. At our airports alone, 3.4 million people are expected to fly to their destinations. That is up 11 percent from last year. Not only is demand soaring, but prices are too. Hotel prices have seen a 15 percent jump from pre-pandemic levels and airfare prices surging nearly 10 percent in the same period. So what does record demand and pricing mean for the travel sector going into this busy weekend? Let's bring in Stephen Trent, airlines analyst and managing director at City. And uh, Stephen, so full planes, high fares, yet the airline stocks in general have been struggling. What's the market suggesting here? Is it as good as it gets? Well, good evening to you and thank you for having me on. Um, I think that the combination of factors is actually very good news uh, for the group. I think we're moving into a new normal. So most Americans are no longer in the office five days a week. I think ticket purchasing patterns have changed. Uh, at the same time, we have tailwind from a fall in oil prices and some normalization of jet fuel kerosene crack spreads. In terms of price action, it's been varied, but I would say there's still a debate um, and elements of the market still trying to make heads or tails as to whether these new purchase patterns are a sign of weakness or a sign of the new normal. Uh, I would argue it's the latter. So, I mean, is there also an issue with the inability to or, or unwillingness among the airlines to add capacity? In other words, they're, they're, they kind of have what they're going to have for a while. And so it's hard to know exactly where the incremental growth comes from. Yeah. So I think in terms of the capacity, to some extent, the group's held hostage by other industry factors. So you have a throughput issue uh, with the jet manufacturers. Uh, you have a supply issue in terms of pilots, uh, as well as mechanics uh, and engine parts. Um, so I don't think it's something that's planned. I think the group's been actually quite effective uh, in putting that paucity of capacity per capita in the price, which is, I think, what any good business person would do. Um, in fact, in terms of growth going forward, I think you're going to see, among other factors, international long haul corridors continuing to spool up and there's going to be growth from that. Yeah. What have we um, seen so far? There was, of course, an expectation with China reopening. You were going to see a pickup in that segment of the market. How is it tracking at this point? Yeah, so what we're seeing in the Trans-Pacific corridor, it's, it's kind of varied. U.S.-China hasn't really picked up that much. Um, but, you know, our proprietary work is showing uh, that U.S. to Southwest Pacific, so U.S., Aussie, New Zealand nonstop, uh, is actually picked up nicely. Uh, and then you look at U.S. to Northeast Asia nonstop, so kind of Japan, Korea. Um, and that segment, according to our data, is also starting to spool up uh, and should actually, on a ticket revenue basis, uh, breach pre-pandemic levels uh, for the first time. What stocks do you think are better positioned? As I was mentioning, they have kind of struggled uh, recently, perhaps just with general uh, kind of economic concerns. Uh, but which carriers seem like uh, they can take advantage of what you're calling this new normal? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit varied. I think those names that are primarily domestic uh, focused 
might have a little bit more time catching up, let's say a JetBlue. You know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the likes of Delta Airlines, uh, Air Canada, uh, Panama's Copa Airlines, which has some very unique uh, attributes in terms of its characteristics. I think those names are going to continue to do very well in terms of operational performance uh, and price action, of course. Uh, Copa Airlines outperformed last year. Uh, it's outperforming again this year. Um, so I think we look at that international long-haul segment, transatlantic even, if we think deeper transatlantic going from U.S. Uh, into Eastern Europe, the Middle East, which is still technically transatlantic. Um, those are the places where I think we're going to be talking about revenue growth one year from now. Gotcha. Um, Stephen, thanks very much. I appreciate the, uh, the time today. We'll catch up with you again oh, soon. My pleasure. All right, let's take a quick look, uh, final look at where the markets did finish up. You had slight gains on the S&P 500 on a week-to-date basis, although today you see it was up 1.3%, the Dow up an even 1%, uh, flat on a year-to-date basis. NASDAQ or composite has been the leader all year. The NASDAQ 100, in fact, is up 30% year-to-date relative to a flat Dow. That's going to do it for, last, uh, for us here uh, on Taking Stock. Last call starts now with Carl Quintanilla. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 